Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may, or you can take the stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may able you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with all your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right. Hello, hello. Good to see you again. Uh, Thank you, Lynette, for reading. That was a pretty lengthy passage. And this is a passage that will be the last one that I will preach in this series on Ephesians. It's the second to last one, however. Like I mentioned earlier, Pastor Bud, in our communal meal next week, um, will share the last bit about praying and these final greetings that Paul gives that are so very people centered. Ephesians is a great, great letter, and it's a letter that is really one that translates across cultures and across all different seasons of the church because it addresses the central issue, which I think is the central issue for all of Paul's letters, and that is this, life in Christ. He loves that phrase, in Christ, and it's A life that is meant to actually be lived. Life in Christ or the Christian life is not something that's primarily just to be believed that you just get indoctrinated into. It's something that you believe in order that you may live. And fancy that, that you might actually live as Jesus lived. And so each week the question has been, how do I live this life in Christ? How do I live this out? Last week, we looked at marriage in Christ. How do I live as a married person in Christ? I intended to get all of the marriage bit plus the children and father bit plus the slave and master bit, which is called the house codes. That was a common formula in an age that actually preceded Paul. Aristotle wrote 400 years before Ephesians these house codes, that is, how to live in Rome or live in this culture as a wife, husband, slave, master, children, parent. But again, 
In Ephesians, we're after how do I live not just in a culture, but watch, how do I then live in Christ within the culture? And so we spent so much time on husbands and wives last week because, frankly, that's a passage that's been misused and abused for a long time. So I hope what was communicated was this idea that Paul communicated, which is submit one to another. That he took a culturally defined role and he replaced it with a Christ-defined role. Wives, you can submit to Christ, and that allows you to submit to your husband. But husbands, you submit to Christ and also one to another. And it's this idea of mutual submission that overturned a lot of the prevailing thoughts of that day, and certainly in ours also, this idea of submission. But he didn't just stop with husband and wife. He took the other culturally defined roles of children, parents, slaves, and masters, and he's going to replace them with Christ-defined roles also. So we're going to answer this mashup sermon, How Do I Live in Christ with Others, and these last bit of relationships we we were supposed to talk about last week. Then we're going to shift gears to Paul's final instructions that are, How Do I Live in Christ? withstanding the evil forces trying to destroy my life in Christ. So if it sounds like two little mini-sermons sandwiched together, it's because it is two little mini-sermons sandwiched together. The other bit that we forget about is I lost my voice, so that kind of set my perfect little nice preaching schedule off track. Uh, But Amy reminded me that in that prayer service, I ended up talking like just as much as I would have Uh, Thank you, Courtney, for shaking your head in agreement. Thank you for thinking I talk too much, okay? Um, But so here we are with these two little mashup sermons. But it's okay because all of Ephesians is about how do I live in Christ? That's the question. That's what we're after. And so let's start in this first section. How do I live in Christ within the home? Okay? How many of you are children? Okay. Okay, yes, everyone is a child. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, you know, you, we didn't have to raise our hands, but thank you for those who played along at home. We're all children. And the thing is this, we're all born into a culture. So whether you're uh, a father or not, we're all children, okay? And so we're all born into these culturally defined roles. And so I wanted to remind us again that the Christ-shaped role that started this section last week is actually in 521. And I'm going to read that. It's not on the screen, but if you have a Bible open in front of you, you'll find that in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how do I live in Christ with others? Well, you submit. You value others' needs above your own. It's radical. It's extreme. And two more examples he's going to give then are the children and the slaves. It was given that children and slaves submit. In those Roman household codes we talked about last week, it probably went something like this for the children and slave groups. Ready? Obey. The end. That's it. And so the culturally defined roles that these children were born into and slaves were sold into is pretty much you do what they say, period. And then Paul comes with this guiding command that is something as insane as submit to one another. 
Oh, well, surely he must just be talking about children and slaves, right? No, because look back at the passage we read earlier. He's also going to talk to the fathers and the masters. You know what the culturally defined role for fathers and masters were? If children and slaves were to obey the end, fathers and masters, which were almost always the same person, they get to have their way the end. And so you have this household that looked very different from our households. It's not just your American family of four with 2.5 children, a dog, because dogs are more American than cats, and a white picket fence. Sorry, cat lovers. It wasn't just this nice little nuclear family. The households that existed in Paul's day when he's writing this is a father who provides shelter. He's, it's in a patriarchal system, so he has these resources, and he's supposed to provide shelter and food, and he's And he's basically the patriarch of a family system that involved his wife, who's submitting, and docile, as was the cultural expectation. He's got children that she's taking care of, who are supposed to obey, end of story. He's got servants and slaves, and then he may even have extended family, so you'd have a multi-generational family system. Don't you know that America is one of the only cultures in the world that pretty much jettisoned the multi-generational thing? But this is the way it was in Rome as it is in many other parts of our world today. And so the fathers and the masters, as you might imagine, they get to be the big wig boss men. So then how do we live in Christ submitting one to another when everything in their culture says, congratulations for be- being born a man with some status. What does it mean for them to submit as well? Well, before we get to the fathers and and, uh, masters, let's look at the children in our text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. And let's see how Paul continually, within the culture, is answering the question, but you are living beyond the culture in Christ. And so how do you live in Him as a child, as a parent, as anything? How do you live as Christ lived? So he addresses the children, and it's going to be a surprise because for both of these children and slave groups, he's going to say, you've got rights too, which is unheard of in that day. And so we see these words that come up, children, obey, You're going to see that word obey quite a bit, okay? We've just got to name it. Do y'all remember what last week's tough word was to talk about? Submit. Paul, give us a break, dude. These are hard words, especially for our culture, because I want to do me and you do you. And most of the time when I want to do me, it's at cost to you. I want to be better than you. I want to get a leg up on you. But here again is another tricky word. Children, obey your parents. Obey your parents. Then he says what? In the Lord. Just like we saw last year, these all these roles in this whole section of house codes, they're not simply do this because. It's always going to be tagged with a motivation what? Because you're in Christ. And so children, obey your parents in the Lord. By the way, it's not obey your parents. Watch, parents in the Lord, i.e. parents that are in Christ, i.e. Christian parents. You with me? Only obey if your parents are Christians. That is not what he's saying. Children obey in the Lord. The in the Lord is for the children. 
not just the parents. So whether your parents are Christian or not, in this culture that Paul's writing this letter to Ephesians, he's saying, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he's going to say, but guess what? Don't just go with, because mom and dad said so, young mister, don't you know? Obey your parents in the Lord. You're not just a child of these people. If you are a child that's in Christ, you have an authority that's higher than mama and papa, for this is right. And if that wasn't enough motivation to be in Christ, he's going to quote one of the very first laws, in fact, one of the first ten laws ever given to God's people in the, in the Ten Commandments, and he says this, Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise. So what he's saying is, hey, remember that Ten Commandment thing? This is the first one that says if you respect or honor your parents, guess what? So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So children, obey, not just because they said so, but because you're doing so in Christ. Also, if in case you needed more, this is how God's always intended it. Why? To honor your parents is to honor God. It's a cultural expectation, but the motivation goes beyond mom and dad, because mom and dad can so many times mess it up. Which is why he immediately jumps back to fathers. Now that could just as easily say parents, but he's addressing fathers. Even though he knows, even in their day, that moms mostly dealt with the kiddos, he's going to take issue with the fathers because the cultural expectation is the fathers, the buck stops with them. But he's going to say, fathers, do not exasperate your children. The expectation was to control harshly, but that SAT word exasperate means don't provoke your children to anger. Fathers, you don't get to just run roughshod over them, just like I was telling you, you can't run roughshod over your wife. You're to respect and love them so radically, so sacrificially, that you end up submitting and serving them too. Fathers, Here's what a Christ-defined role looks like for fathers and mothers as parents. Don't provoke them to anger. Now, Amy and I, of course, are parents to two toddlers, and so they get provoked at the slightest thing, yes? I mean, the other day, Emma said, Daddy, you hurt my life. And that's because I didn't give her a Snickers bar that would have hurt her stomach. And then hurt my life because I'd have to clean up a mess. And I'll just leave it at that. So she said, you hurt my life. What a drama queen. Amy and I say, my goodness, we ruin their lives every day. We exasperate them. No, we don't exasperate them, Lord willing. You know what exasperation looks like. You know what it looks like because it doesn't look like Jesus. And so parents, you get upset. Kids, they get upset. We can't help how we feel. You know, I heard a counselor say that anger is oftentimes the most overused of the emotions. We like to put more mileage on anger than anything else. Children, you need to honor and respect your parents. And even Paul probably had in view adult children who are living within this household too, but that obedience looked different. It was more of a respect. 
So for all of us kids, we can honor and respect our parents. But also, parents, you need to submit in such a way where you're not being a bully to kids, little or otherwise. And so he says there's a difference here. He says instead of that, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Basically, treat your kids as as Christ would. And there's a difference here. Instruct them. And watch this. If you instruct them, not provoke them, you realize that instruction is much more than discipline. Yes? Instruction is so much more than discipline. A lot of times when we approach the Bible or places like Proverbs, the spare the rod, spoil the child, this kind of bit, we think that all that parenting is as a Christian is just discipline, discipline, discipline. It's so much more than that. What kind of father would would there be or mother would there be if your only interaction to your kid is simply discipline? Rather, instruct them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Basically, show them Jesus and show Him His way. Now, if that's not politically correct, I'm sorry, if you're Christian parents and in Christ, and if you believe that the way, the truth, and the life is in Him, and that He loves us, and He's calling us, and it's the best way to live, show them Jesus in His way. As much as it's up to you, pray that they would fall in love with Jesus. And you who don't have kids in this church, pray for the kids of our church because you're helping to raise them too. So instruct them in the ways of the Lord. That's what's going on right now as we speak. So that's the children and fathers. How do I live as a children? I obey like I would Christ. Fathers, I want to reflect Christ and how I treat my children. He's taking these culturally defined roles, he's replacing them with Christ-shaped roles, and then he goes to the tricky situation of the slaves and masters. Now, I want to read this section, and then we're going to talk a bit about the thorny issue of slavery in our Bible, and then we're going to talk about some principles or Christ-defined relationships we can look at, and then we're going to get to the armor here in a moment. So let's read verses 5 to 9 of chapter 6, okay? Slaves, here's that word again, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. That's a tall order. Just, however, as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Quick note, already two verses in, we have two motivations that are tied to Christ, not just to your master. You with me? Verse 7. So serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving who? The Lord, not people. There's another Christ motivation. Because you know that the Lord will reward each each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are what? Slave or free. There is one Lord and he shows no favoritism, which is what he says in verse 9. Masters also, treat your slaves in the same way. Well, what kind of way, Paul? I don't know. For a start, let's look back up there. With respect, sincerity, fear, to win their favor, 
This is why that mutual submission bit in 521 that we read earlier is so crucial, not just for wives and husbands, but because Christ comes in and redefines and revolutionizes every one of our relationships. He takes the household and where everyone thought this is the way it ought to be, he upends it. Because guess what? Everyone thought the way of the world is to hate our enemies, but Jesus screwed that up because he said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So should we be surprised that he upends the slave and master relationship in his day? Of course not, because you know what? And I'm cutting ahead to the chase, especially in my notes, and I told you I was going to read the whole section, but I'm not, because I want to tell you something. Jesus is going to upset the whole world, and he's going to revolutionize the whole world, and in the new world, there's going to be no people that are oppressed and in bondage to masters or Satan or otherwise. Spoiler alert. In the new world, Paul gives us a glimpse in Galatians 3 that says, hey, there's no longer slave or free. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. That's what he spent so much ink on the beginning of this letter to say, guess what? There's one way to God and it's in Jesus. You don't have to go get circumcised and follow the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled it so you didn't have to. So all this business of male or female, don't worry about it. You're one in Christ. All this business of Jew and Gentile, don't worry about it if you're in Christ. All this business, if you're slave or free, you're in Christ. You're equal. But again, how do we live in Christ within a culture that says, wait, slaves are property? So before we come back to these verses, let's circle back around because this is the issue and question on every one of your minds at this moment, and that's this. Is Paul endorsing slavery because he gives these instructions to slaves that says things like obey? The short answer that you all should know is no, Paul's not endorsing slavery. What is Paul doing then? Well, N.T. Wright, when he talks about this passage, he says, Paul and the Ephesian Christians in Asia could no more imagine a world without slavery than we could imagine a world without electricity or vehicles. And if you think that that sounds tough, what he's saying is that in Paul's world, slavery was such a given. And slavery uh, it affected 27 million people in the Roman Empire. They're thought to be, have been slaves. An enormous amount of the population of the Roman Empire were in slavery. And so when uh, Paul's addressing this, he's addressing 27 million people that have to sort out how do I live as a free person without condemnation in Christ when I've got to serve someone who is also telling me they're my master. And so Paul is addressing these people within a culture that, by the way, slavery is not racially based like it was in our culture, but it's still an abomination like it was in our culture. So it's not racially based and also treatment of slaves varied widely. But again, does that mean it's an endorsement? No. What it means is how do I live as a slave in Christ within culture? And here's what he's going to say. Simply live as though God's new world has come, even though you're living in a world in which you're still a slave. With Philemon, with the Corinthians, he talks about slaves who have come to be in Christ but who are also in a hopeless situation of being property. Look what he says elsewhere 
Paul as to how to live in Christ within the culture. Here's our example in 1 Corinthians 7. Were you a slave when you were called to be in Christ? Don't let it trouble you. What? That would trouble me. But again, this is a culture that's so vastly different from ours, and it's not okay But Paul, to say, let's just end slavery, would mean that the entire movement of those in Christ who are free in Christ would be wiped out. And so to say that we should abolish this is less than beneficial because it's just going to get them killed. Rome already looked at the Christians like these messed up people who were loving enemies and sharing with the poor because guess what happened every week when they gathered in the name of Jesus? Free people sat next to slaves. And slaves sat next to merchants. And merchants sat next to women. And women sat next to those who were begging on the street, but they came in for a meal because in the name of Jesus, they could eat that night because the Christians saw Jesus touching and welcoming others, regardless of those distinctions which have been abolished in Christ. So if you're a slave, don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Do you think Paul is going to tell people, hey, you need to be a slave no matter what? No. If you can gain your freedom, do it. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when he is called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price, so do not. If you have a choice like some people did at the end of their rope, selling themselves into slavery so they could get into some father or master's house with shelter and food, he says, guess what? Don't sell yourself into slavery if you have a choice. And if you are a slave, try to get free. But if you're not free, it's okay because guess what? Free or otherwise, we're all slaves to Jesus. We follow Him as our master Ultimately, I have an example in Philemon, but I think we just need to hang with that because we got a lot of ground to cover. Write down Philemon 15 to 16. He says something wild. Sends Onesimus back, who is in Christ, who is a slave, to his owner and master Philemon, and he tells Philemon, he has the stones to tell Philemon in the course of his meal when he reads this letter from Paul. He says, Onesimus, you're the master, you better welcome him back. But you don't welcome him back as a slave, you welcome him back as a brother. Because in Christ, guess what? All our relationships are defined in him. So masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, because Jesus wouldn't threaten them. Since you know, Master, that he who is both their master and yours, there is a higher master, yes? So whatever this person says, or this idiot that comes on and says, well, slavery's in the Bible and it says it's okay, they need to understand that there is only one master over all heaven and all earth and people under the earth are over it or whatever and it's Jesus. And what Paul is saying is Christ upends all of it and he tells the masters to treat them fairly, to not threaten them because the same master of them is the master of him and he's in heaven and there's no favoritism in him. Jesus does not see our distinction of slave, free, male, female. He sees son, daughter, 
is what Abba says. Jesus sees mine sheep. I love. So, to Paul, we're all slaves to Christ. And what's going on in these house codes, he's working within the culture, but he's still upending and shaping it with Christ. And that's why you see this parallel. If we can draw it to our culture, none of us in here are slaves, praise God. Because what happened in this country is anti-Christ. And unfortunately, a lot of supposed Christians thought it was okay to own people. And frankly, that is not okay. We know this. So none of us are slaves, but we're all working for people. We're all working, and so many Bible teachers, preachers, writers throughout the centuries have seen that we can also pull a way of working that goes beyond our bosses and our people. And so for those of us who work, how do you live in Christ as one who works? Look again at verse 5. Do this with sincerity of heart. Why? Just as you would obey Christ. Do you respect your boss, your co-workers, as you would Christ? Now many of you, you're shaking your head because they probably look nothing like Christ. If you're shaking your head, I'm going to tell your boss you said that. I'm just messing with you. But you know what? Who has the ultimate authority? Can we live as those who work with sincerity of heart? Because you know who didn't probably like their masters, perhaps? Some of these slaves. But Paul says, if you're in Christ, serve with sincerity of heart. Look at verse 6 again. Don't do it just to win their favor when their eye is on you. How many of you, if you were working in a factory, or you see that old Looney Tune, like as soon as the boss man comes around, they're like, hey boss, look at me, oh, I'm doing great. I mean, it's just like, this is what he's talking about. Don't just do it when they're looking. Don't work to impress them, but work as though Christ is your audience. Why? Don't work to win their favor, but as slaves of Christ, do it from your heart. Remember that word? He said, work with sincerity. Do it from your heart. How can you do that? Well, if you see your work as in Christ, you can, like he says in verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Work well in Christ, no matter who it's for, because at the end of the day, your relationships are always in the context of relating to Christ. How you treat others, enemy, boss, children, parents, otherwise. There is a sense in which our relating to them is how we would relate to Christ, good or bad. You know, remember when Jesus says in the Gospels at the end of the age, when did we feed you? Jesus, when did we clothe you? Or for the others, I didn't see you. He says, hey, those who did these things, your reward is because you did them to me, even to the least, that you would have thought looked nothing like me. So all of us who work, we can see our jobs are a context for serving Christ. And even though none of us are slaves today, there's still something to see when we live in Christ within our culture today. So we take another right turn because Paul takes a right turn. And he finishes up his final teaching in this letter with the famous armor of God. And we're not going to take just too much more, lo- too much more longer <laughs> too much longer with this but it's it, because I think this is something we may come back to in the months ahead 
as we sort out kind of maybe in a summer series some different topics. And this topic is that of spiritual warfare. Paul's final instruction then may seem odd to you after this whole house code stuff, but the reality is he takes this sobering teaching that our life in Christ will be assaulted. And so when we talk about our culture or his culture, I think one of the persistent things when we talk about the dark, unseen spiritual forces, we can take two cultural extremes. And the first one, I think, is that there's a demon behind every rock or bad thing. Have you heard the whole, the devil made me do it? Do you know that there are some Christian denominations who will set you free because so much of their theology about how we sin or what is happening when we sin is because we could actually be under the influence of demons. There are Christian cultures that are saying demons are behind every bad thing. You didn't get a parking spot? That's because a demon was sitting there Indian style, dog. He blocked you. I'm making a joke, but it sounds crazy because it's an extreme. Another way it could be an extreme, I've known people in ministry who wore hats that said occult specialist. And he was a demon hunter, this man said. And so it's this sense that he was going out and making war on these people. But then when we read this next section, we see that most of what we're supposed to do is rely on Jesus and most of this armor except for one, is defensive, not offensive. So this one extreme where there's a demon behind every corner, and it kind of negates just how sometimes our hearts are corrupted. But then the other extreme is to say, well, it's just our hearts and it's just humans and there are no demons. They ain't behind rocks because they ain't anywhere. And that's another extreme where we just completely look the other way and say, you know what, this is something that is ancient, it's something that Paul is off his rocker, well so I guess is Peter and Jesus and John and all these other people. Now I think when we look at how they operate in this world, Paul takes for granted that demons and these spiritual forces and the devil, the enemy, are real. They may be unseen, And they may not always manifest in the way we see in the horror movies that you saw in October. But they are working at undermining God's people. Whether it's in our homes or in our churches or otherwise. And so we see this sobering reminder that our life in Christ is under attack. But we can stand firm in Jesus. Let's read this section. We'll circle back around. We'll be done in a moment. Not to gloss over this, but really the central point that you're going to see is this word stand. Look with me how many times you see standing and being strong in the Lord. So he says in verse 10 of chapter 6, finally, and what's that finally for? Hey, if I could just have one last stab at it of this whole letter about life in Christ, if I could summarize it and give you a sobering last word to send you with, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. So you don't have to be strong on your own. Isn't that good news? You don't have to go out and have a hat that says occult specialist. There's a Christian metal band called Demon Hunter. 
And they may rock and roll. You ain't got to hunt demons. Friend, they're going to come and find you. But all you have to do is be strong in Jesus. Because against them, I'm not sure we're so strong. You don't have to be strong on your own. You just have to be in Him. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And the way in which we do that is He introduces us to this enemy in, verse, in the next verses. Put on the full armor of God, which we're going to look at, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So that implies that there is a devil and he's scheming against those who are in Christ. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What's our war and our battle? Is it against ISIS? Is it against the enemy down the street? No, it's not against flesh and blood for God's people in Christ. It is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What about that heavenly realms? I thought God and his angels were in heaven. Well, in Paul's day and in Ephesians, and we've seen it elsewhere in this text, there are a sense that in Paul's day that the angels and authorities were up in the air, the principalities and powers. Have you heard this? Shake your head because I know we're getting late. Yes. Well, guess what? Christ is seated above all of them. He's dealt them a defining blow. He's won his victory in principle on the cross and in the resurrection, but they're still scheming, they're still working, and they're still conspiring against us because Paul said in verse 12, our struggle is against these people. Jesus dealt them a defeating blow, but until his kingdom comes in fullness, watch, these dark forces he's talking about are going to be panicked and assaulting all of God's people in his church because he wants to undermine what Christ has done. So until that day when all his enemies are made a footstool, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we've got to withstand their attacks, which is why Paul gives us this plan to put on that armor he mentioned. Look with me then in verse 13. Therefore, since they're coming at you, life is not a day on the beach. It looks more like the beach at Normandy. You just can't see them. They're working implicitly in our addictions. They're working in our anger like we saw in Ephesians. Don't be angry in sin and give the devil a foothold. They're working in shadowy, plain ways uh, to some of us. But to most of us, they're working in the unseen ways through anger and division and strife and addiction and depression and darkness, looking for any foothold to get in edgewise so that they may work and oppress what God is up to. So we must put on the armor and be strong in Christ. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to, here's that word again, stand your ground. Don't go out hunting. They will hunt for you. But if you're strong in Him and putting on this armor, we can, after you've done everything, stand. So stand firm then, he says here in verse 14 with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
And I think we're not going to look at it this week, but verse 18 goes right with it. And pray in the Spirit. So put on all this armor and pray in the Spirit. So I actually have a bunch of armor back here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know what's funny? <laughs> what if I really got that armor? Would that be awesome? I, will, I loved the armor. And you know what's funny is Paul could have just said this. Put on truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith. He could have just listed all these virtues. But what he's doing is he's pulling on an analogy, of course, of the Roman soldier of his day, but also God, who was seen as a divine warrior doing battle against the dark forces in places like Isaiah. And so we're supposed to put these things on. Truth, and it's the belt that holds it all together. We're supposed to put on this righteousness. It's reflecting God's justice for this world. We're putting on the gospel. That's a quote from Isaiah 52. We put it on our feet, and he said, How beautiful is the feet of those who bring a gospel that says, Your God reigns. Satan, or anyone else, doesn't. Put this on. Put on this faith, this shield that extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. They are going to make an attack, but with the shield, they can extinguish these darts. You know they would soak the Roman soldiers' shields in water because when the flaming arrows come, it wasn't just like in the movies. They would really shoot them, but with a shield that was ready and strong and wet, it could extinguish the darts. And isn't it funny that that's truth? And he spends a lot of time on this shield of faith. I said truth, but the shield of faith. You can extinguish these arrows because faith is trust that God is who He says He is. Faith is trust that if you're in Christ, you're His. And no one can snatch you out of His hand. Truth and faith it's trust that when Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I don't know what an arrow looks like in your life, but maybe it's that you're not as good as you say you are. You're not as good as Jesus says you are. You're not as good as Adam or anybody else says you are. I don't know what the darts look like. They may look like that. The shield of faith. Faith is a ridiculous trust that God is who He says He is and you're who you are in Him. A saint, beloved. So I don't know what the arrows look like. Maybe it is the temptation, the things that we typically associate with the enemy. But if you trust and have faith, it's that that extinguishes these arrows that come. And that's so tied closely in verse 17 to the helmet of salvation that comes. And it reminds you that you're His. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon, the only thing that could be used offensively in our struggle, is what? What is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. Now most people, sorry to burst your bubble, would not say he's referring to the Bible. Because Paul had no sense of a Bible when he was writing this. Because he was writing the Bible. So the Word of God here is the Gospel that King Jesus reigns. And he is amassing a world of people to reign in him and with him. And so, when Jesus in Isaiah is spoken of, the Messiah is spoken of, he's often spoken of with a sword that comes out of his mouth like he does in Revelation. And it's his gospel, his good news that say, I reign with peace and justice. And I have people who have surrendered to my reign and I'm going to keep them in me.
So again, my prayer for you in this church is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The Christian life is one that's to be lived in Him. To choose to do what Jesus would do if He were in your shoes. Single, married, children, parents, slave, free, on the good days and the bad days, on the days you feel it, the days you don't. To choose to do what Jesus would do because you are in Him and He is in you. And if we are hidden in Christ, our homes and our church will be able to withstand and the gates of hell won't prevail against us because He is our Lord and He is strong. Well, thank you for um, this series. I hope it's been a blessing. Come back next week to finish it up because it all comes down to a continual living that life in prayer and it's living that life with others. And so let's pray. Let's come to the table together and let's trust Jesus and encourage each other to be strong in Him. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this text. Thank You for this letter to a church of so many different people from a time that's so different from ours. I pray that You would hide these words in our heart, that we would come back to this text over and over and find life and the beauty of those sweeping views of our life in Him and then also those ways in which we can walk in it in the practical sections. We pray that you would make this church strong in you. That we continually encourage and live and love with one another. That you would guide us and direct us and be our strength when we don't have it ourselves. So please bless us tonight. And we surrender our lives to you. We surrender everything at the craft fair that we made and sold and bought. Trusting that in your hands it's multiplied beyond any dollar amount, but to food and light and good news to those for years to come as we serve those in our area. Thank you for this. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May we follow Jesus by pursuing peace, even at great cost to ourselves, striving for reconciliation, wholeness, and justice in this broken world. May we trust God with our protection, provision, and vindication as we stand firm in Christ our Lord. May we courageously love those considered our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, and bear witness to the sacrificial love of Jesus amid a vengeful, violent age. May we lay down our rights, our weapons, and our freedoms, taking up instead the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were yet sinners and enemies of God. May we walk in step with the Holy Spirit, who frees us to serve others and empowers us to make peace in impossible circumstances. May we pray expectantly for God's kingdom to come in fullness, when God himself will be our rest and our peace, and when he will make all things new. Go in peace.